Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. It is not just cheaper, faster, better, right? I'm not going to deny that. If we go forward a number of years, it's going to cause what we've been calling economic singularity, right? Value of labor drops to zero and you got all kinds of problems from that. But in the immediate future, what's going to be interesting is this is the first technology that we have that enables us to automate relationships. Basically, the AI can interact with us the way we interact with us. This sounds very trivial, but if you look at tech and you look at what has enabled tech to scale up to an incredible size around the world, it's our ability to automate the transaction. It's just that thing. And the, the problem with that is you end up with conversations of six months LTV, lifetime value, right? What sense is that you're talking about a human being and your lifetime values over six months? And it's for a simple reason. When you automate transactions, all you control is that transaction. So you take a human being and you transact and you drain the relationship out of that relationship and you throw it away and then you get another one and keep going. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and ChatGPT's emergence ushered a new era of innovation in artificial intelligence and machine learning. What are the opportunities for the startups here in the Asia Pacific, given the VC funding is coming back to supercharge AI companies? So with me today, Ong Peng Sin, co-founder and managing partner of Monks Hill Ventures. We last spoke here on the podcast in November 2015 and how time flies. Ping, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Bernard. Good to be here. Congratulations. The last time we spoke, we were still at the beginning of the first and the second fund, and now you're on the third fund, which is actually a very good leading indicator. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Boy, that's more than half a decade of stuff. Investing mostly. We've done a lot of deals since then. I think 2015 was when Mansell did his first deal, right? So that's the span of my two plus funds. We are, we are in the middle of fund three right now. So it's a lot of deals, a lot of work. I think we have 40 plus investments at this point. So mm. mainly that. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's boring. That, that. Well, I'm quite curious. I, I guess at the early stage of building the fund and now the fund has reached a certain maturity and you have a relatively mid-sized team. What What's a typical day now look like for you after building a team that now supports the fund over the past eight years, not just in the new sourcing or the investing, but also the portfolio management and also talking to potential new LPs for the next few funds to come? Yeah, I, I think the biggest difference, it, although it's not that big a difference, I, I spend a bit less time directly researching each and every deal 
you know, I still do that, but we have a lot of folks who also dig into companies. I spend more time now, believe it or not, just talking. You know, if you if you look at my average day, I'm meeting, 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 meeting. And each meeting is talking, right? Like right now I'm talking, <laughs> which is very odd, you know, coming from my background of running companies or before that being an engineer. Uh, you talk a lot less. Uh, I think I'm probably better at talking now, which I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing. But also sharing advice sometimes, right? I mean, uh, but it's will come to you for all kinds of things. Yeah, talking to understand, talking to coach, talking to strategize, etc. Mm. I'm quite curious if a, a young entrepreneur or maybe now maybe an old entrepreneur would come to you, what kind of advice would you give to him or her in terms of thinking about starting a company or maybe coming to you for fundraising? I, I just published a list of about eight different things I look for in startups. That might be a good place to start, actually very strategic level. So this is not your usual, you know, find good co-founders kind of list. Yeah, and the, the article is on my website, so it's easy to find, amongsil.com. But what I would advise is uh, before you even start is to really sit down, first principles, what's your life about? What's your 100 years about? Each one of us is given about 100 years if we're lucky, right? And what you do with it, the meaning you create with that 100 years is for you to define, right? And the scary part is if you don't define the meaning, you're lucky if you accidentally create some. A lot of people would spend that those years and not create anything meaningful, and that's very, very sad. So go think through that first before you jump into a startup and be sure there's alignment in that. That's a very good point in advice. I guess the privilege of a lifetime is to be yourself, but also figuring out what where to go. But that's not from me. That's from Joseph Campbell, which comes to the main subject of the day. So Ping, I am very glad to have you on the show because I want to talk about the future of AI and what it really means for the Asia Pacific region. I think one place to start was I saw your article on the future of human machine relationships and what does that mean for businesses? I, I guess to really start the conversation, I would like to baseline it. Can you share your interest in generative AI and also how you, do you define things like generative AI, large language models, or we call LLMs, and also generative pre-trained transformers such as the GPTs? Right, uh, that's a lot. And I'm going to add in mm. some more by going back all, all the way. My my interest in AI actually started in, in high school as a sci-fi geek, right? You read about all these future worlds and you go, hmm, probably one of the most interesting things humans can figure out is how humans work, right? And, and so I, I started studying computers and computer science and so on, all, all, all the way through school, I did my graduate work in computer, in, in computer science, but in AI. And I've always been thinking about how this transformation happened. In fact, I, I learned enough about AI that I stopped doing AI when, when I went into the workforce. After, after my first job, my first job was expert systems. So because I thought it would take a long time, maybe beyond my productive years, before AI really could take off. And and I'm sort of in the ballpark of being right <laughs> you know, on that forecasting. The great thing about doing graduate work in, in AI is you actually become, the, the topic forces you to become almost a, a metaphysicist, right? You think about meaning, you think about 
consciousness, you think about what is thinking, right? Uh, what is sentient? People throw out that word a lot, sentient, sentient, sentient. Well, what does that mean, right? So you think a lot about it, and, and that's not necessarily in the realm of AI, but in the realm of philosophy. So that went on to basically a career in software instead of AI. And then I think at a certain scale, probably two to three orders of magnitude from when I was in grad school, the dog started talking, right? <laughs> and everyone went, whoa, the dog's talking. <laughs> Let's see if we can put the dog in front of a three-ton truck and drive, let him drive it. Bad idea. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff is starting to happen simply because, and, and frankly, I look at the the neural networks, the architecture, yeah, that's a little bit more complicated than when I was doing it, but when I was studying this stuff, but it is much more more similar than different. And the, the biggest difference is just the scale of the networks, the scale of the data training sets, right? So it's like three, four orders of magnitude different. And that's where we get emergent behaviors. And, and that's why the the dog's talking, but we don't quite understand why it's talking, right? Mm. And I like that analogy. I, I don't remember who, I think we were just joking around and someone said that. And I thought, hey, that makes sense. And and the analogy is very real because we can't just, just because the dog's talking, you don't know what the dog's thinking. So you can't tell the dog to go do difficult things like be a doctor or something without a lot more consideration. Mm. We can go into architectures mm. that will 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 be will have to be created in the future to allow the the AI to be functional. But we're just in the lab right now. But I also want to draw back maybe to have some baselining. How do you define things like generative AI and maybe even like large language models, LLMs, and also the pre-trained transformers? What are their roles in this current era of this generative AI boom that's ongoing? Yeah, both generative AI and LLMs are just different sort of con constructs at getting to emergent behaviors that reflect intelligence that are similar to, I think, how our brains demonstrate emergent behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. We don't, the dog has a similar brain to us, but we don't expect the dog to talk, but at some level of complexity, that brain talks, right? So those two model generative AI LLMs are just different ways to to get that emergent behavior in different domains, right? LLMs specifically around languages, etc., and generative AI, you know, sort of a catch-all for the rest. The tricky part is we actually, you know, don't quite understand why this emergent behavior is happening at this scale of data and this scale of neural networks, right? In fact, arguably, some of the LLMs that seem to work can be scaled down quite significantly from the current sizes, which makes me think we, we're just kitchen sinking the whole thing, you know, just throwing everything in. And it, of course, something interesting happens, but it'll be more interesting if you can see the, you know, with fewer nodes and points, parameters you can get to that kind of behavior. I think that's where the interesting thing goes because I cannot put put an LLM in one of these yet or effective ones, right? It would be interesting in case you're just listening and pointing to my cell phone. So it would be interesting to be able to get that level of understanding so that we can simplify 
LLM to fit into several gigabytes of memory. And, you know, I think the computer is fine. This is just the memory. I guess the GPTs, the, the chat GPTs are actually one of those things that initiate the unlock. I think one question I really have is what is the major unlock for this technology, given that a lot of people hailed it as the iPhone moment or <laughs> this is the new electricity? This is more like the iPhone prototype moment. <laughs> so here, here's the problem. The truck driving dog is a serious analogy. You have this thing that behaves in very in intelligently for 99% of the time. And for 1% of the time, it just goes apeshit crazy, right? <laughs> and as a software engineer, this is a what they call an NP-hard problem. You, you cannot prove that it will not go crazy, no matter what you do, because the, the, the algorithm DSS is too large, right? So you cannot put these things into mission-critical situation, whether live or large sums of money are involved, right? So that's why you see ChatGPT is you know, doing things that if it blows up, okay, do something else, right? It's not a big deal. And that's, those are fine applications, right? There are applications for dog talking, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you, you can look at the dog and have fun. And, you, know, you, you can even have an interesting dialogue with dog so long as it, it's not going to kill anyone, right? If it's wrong. So now you, you look at software itself, right? If you look at all our mission-critical systems, most of them, and they should be if they're not, are tractable. What we call, we understand the computational bounds of what they do. So you got this one thing called the AI that can go do crazy things. And my view is that at some point, in order to use AI in more mission-critical things, we need to put boundaries around it. So computationally tractable boundaries, right? Which tells you it's not going to, you know, drive the truck into a wall or run red lights or whatever, right? All those things. And I think this has been done, I'm not very sure, but I think it's been done by some of the folks doing self-driving cars at MIT where they use a neural network in the middle and they put a rule-based system around it. And the rule-based system is somewhat tractable, right? You, you know what's going to happen there. So I think uh, the future architecture of AIs are, is, is going to have to look something like that. In fact, the, the, the prob I think the problem that ChatGPT has is, is using, I actually don't, I haven't looked at the full details of how it controls itself. For example, there are, it tends to be politically correct. What did they do to make it politically correct? I think I, I haven't, Maybe they published this, I, I don't know, but if they are using the neural network to control a neural network to be rational, they have the same problem. That straight jacket around the neural network cannot be another neural network because you have the same problem. They also use a process called fine-tuning to yeah. try to do that. But I guess what you're trying to allude to is that there is this boundary and yeah. the boundary is a bit sort of wavy and you don't yeah. really know how to set it because of the the way how you can take language in so many different directions That's right. on that. Yeah, so you actually cannot use a neural network to control another neural network and be, and be comfortable that the dog can drive a truck, right? Mm. So, so the, the architecture around the neural network like in mission-critical situations, I think needs to be 
non-neural network. I think there's still a, a place for logic. If I if I read it correctly, like there's certain logic that you need to place within that system, yes. a certain set of rules. You cannot just rely on an AI generating that heuristics yeah. that will cause the machine critical control to go somewhere else. Yes. And, and the reason is very simple. Is is you know, theory of computation, right? It tells you that something as complex as a neural network, you cannot predict what's going to happen, right? So you need something that's simpler for which you can predict. Mm. Yeah. yeah, correct. Space jacket I, neural network. I think we can use an example, like for example, airplanes. And this is a known open secret from Airbus that the plane taking off, landing, everything is automated. But the reason why the pilot exists is actually to make sure that the landing is safe and the, the taking <laughs> off is safe or something goes wrong in, in between the mid-air, but 90% 90, 90 of the entire flight you have is totally automated by itself because it has a very fixed set of aviation control and logic. And, yes. and that actually has an ISO sitting on top. Is it you have to audit yes. this plane yeah. as it's yeah. itself. And by the way, the algorithms they use in in the airplane, just like the algorithms they use to self-drive the Tesla, are not just AI stuff. You know, it's very rule-based and it's very mm. trackable. And, and frankly, the accidents, the, the few accidents you've seen with Tesla is because they've hit upon the 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 limits of the tractability, right? Like, for example, it, it can't see the difference between the sky and the truck, right? Yeah, that's um, right. It's, that's, it's the edge cases, basically. Yeah, it's the edge cases that they that the computer programmers forgot to account for, mm -hmm. right? So the hole is not in the tractability of the algorithms, but in the bugginess of the algorithms. Yeah, but then you, you see how what happens with the AlphaGo and AlphaFold, right? Yeah. And that is actually doing a very different form of machine learning by yeah, giving it a few rules and then ask it to learn. And then what happens is yeah, that now yeah, yeah, yeah. it's able to play against champions. But one of the things that I actually learned from that AlphaGo documentary is that because I read a lot of Go chess books and people talk about the God move, it is the one move that it changes the entire dynamics of the game. I mean, if you look at the documentary, clearly it is the move that the computer cannot expect that this low probability move, which they schedule something at 0 0.009 when they when right. they sit down played it and it changes the game of the dynamic. So maybe AI can actually help to even make more God moves or even train humans to become better and better. Yeah, I, I was just watching a Netflix documentary on killer robots, right? It's worth watching. It is, I recommend that to people. But they were interviewing a fighter pilot that was going up against the AI-powered you know, fighter pilot, AI-powered jet. And, and his commentary was revealing. He said that the computer fought like it didn't care if it died, something like that, uh. right? So because it doesn't value life, its own life. So maybe that's an advantage of logic beyond humans. Our mm. sense of self-preservation prevents us from doing these God moves, maybe. Don't mm. know. Just well, just yeah. To just get back to the conversation about generative AI, I guess, how do you see now the different layers of technology? For example, we have the foundation models in the form of LLMs dominated by very few players like OpenAI with ChatGPT. Oh. 
Anthropic and Hugging Faces, which is open source, right? And then now you have Llama from Facebook, which is actually a better, like you see, it's, the models got squeezed down. And then also there's the API layers that's actually being driven by Langchain. And, and then after that, it's the applications where people build plugins to harness the generative AI or even auto GPT, where you can now basically take a yeah. few moves and put it into a workflow. Yeah. How do you see these layers of technology? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to take a perspective that's probably different from most. There's a fundamental principle that is not obvious and you might want to reflect on it before you assume this. I assume that all sustainable competitive differences due to proprietary information, proprietary knowledge. Right? If it's out in the open, somebody else will figure it out. Right? That so so not not an obvious assumption, but that's my assumption, right? So mm-hmm. if you if you look at all that's happening to the LLMs, you, you start to realize there's nothing proprietary about what's going on there. You know, I can see the architecture, I can see the training set, I can see, you know, whatever they're doing, open AI by definition is open, right? <laughs> uh, maybe Facebook does something different, but unless someone is has a lot of proprietary information that they're using either to train or the training set or something there, the LLMs that they produce will be more or less commodities, right? They're very expensive. You know, we like to say a diamond dozen, but at $50 million per training is about $600 million a dozen, right? It's not that expensive as big companies go. So my belief is that over the next year, you're going to see a dozen of these in the U.S. There's at least two or three of them in China. I think our friend Kai Fu just started doing one for China. Five, and actually. Five now. Yeah. yeah. I haven't been keeping track. Yeah. But it, it doesn't matter because there's going to be a lot of them all over around the world, right? Singapore might do one, I don't know, right? And any big country might build one or two of these because there might be security reasons to do it. You don't want to depend on somebody else's LLMs. Don't know. But this is not top secret stuff at this point. And it's going yeah. to proliferate because of the value that it's... I, I want a talking dog, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about the application layer. That means yeah. the, the LLMs are in the background because yeah. Google has just launched this thing called the RTO where yeah. they put the LLM and a robot and just to do hand motion using... Um, okay, then where's the straight jacket thing is my question. But, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that will be coming very soon, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's all that other stuff that makes it interesting, right? It's, it's not the, the LLM itself. Yeah, but th- there's this question that's always been on my mind. Why countries may end up doing their own LLMs is because of language and also the excess of data, right? I mean, yeah. think, think for example, in our region, if we think about language support, and this, this is really the problem that a lot of people in this region face, is that using the sequential neural networks is not going to work. Yeah. But transformer models work, right? But it's just that you need to put the data. And I I don't believe for the fact the bigger ones actually take into account all the nuanced data sets that are sitting around. So yeah. do you think that there's still a place for LLM, let's say like within the region, say a say a Southeast Asia specific, but maybe targeted yeah. at a few languages? Yeah, I I I I I you know, at, at some level, whether you and I think it is there's a reason for it is almost irrelevant because someone's going to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I'm thinking because about that question too, quite a lot. It's too interesting. A, and I cannot think through the national security reasons yet. We just started talking about this, but there might there might be some reasons to do it from a strategic point of view, right? So that, I don't know. The people with higher pay grades than me will have to figure mm. it out. I think minus defense aside, I mean, just thinking about, let's say, like conversational models yeah. and and it is actually very difficult to get language support for languages here. I I know that because of my past experience yeah. leading the AI business for AWS, but I wouldn't say much on that account. But what I'm just saying is that there, there may be pockets of opportunity that may be very regional specific. Well, if, if they didn't train the AI on native language sets and all that stuff, then yeah, there'll be a differentiation. It's not necessarily proprietary information, but it's information they didn't use to train their LLMs. So the American LLMs might not work as well as a local LLM if the one here that is trained better, right? I've seen, you know, other other training sets that's got nothing to do with generative AI and LLMs. And they get very good at what they're doing. In one case is designing consumer products, right? And FMB type products, right? Mm. And they're trained on very specific set of information and some proprietary information. And so they can charge a lot of money for those kinds of behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I read the paper on Bloomberg GPT. So the Bloomberg GPT is 51% of public data. That yeah. means the indices, the everything that you can grab out from the public. But actually 49% is actually their own internal data. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where you can produce a LLM that's differentiated, right? But mm. you got to be careful, right? Because you know people could potentially reverse engineer your LLM by telling it to spit out all the data it's trained on. <laughs> yeah, here's worse. I I just had this conversation on per- personal protected information, right? If you accidentally train your AI so that it knows you know whose data it is and all that your $50 million of training is flushed down the drain because there's no way to untangle that stuff. You have to just reset the whole training. So mm-hmm. scrubbing the proprietary information out is very important. And not just the proprietary information, the, the, the ability to make connections with individuals and their data within the neural network, right? Mm-hmm. So you might not have the direct link, but you can infer, right? Then the AI is going to infer, and then your your neural network has to be rescrubbed, right? So I'm going to change the conversation a bit. Yeah. I want to look at a little bit more in terms of market. How would you describe, say, the total market opportunity for AI? I mean, specifically, maybe also you we definitely see a lot more boom in generative AI startups within Southeast Asia, given breakthrough from ChatGPT. Um, so this is where I, I bring up this observation that it is not just cheaper, faster, better, right? I'm not going to deny that. If we go forward a number of years, it's going to cause what we've been calling economic singularity, right? Value of labor drops to zero and you got all kinds of problems from that. But in the immediate future, what's going to be interesting is this is the first technology that we have that enables us to automate relationships. Basically, the AI can interact with us the way we interact with us. This sounds very trivial, but if you look at tech and you look at what has enabled tech to scale up to an incredible size around the world, 
is our ability to automate the transaction. It's just that thing. And the, the problem with that is you end up with conversations of six months LTV, lifetime value, right? What sense is that you're talking about a human being and your lifetime values over six months? And it's for a simple reason. When you automate transactions, all you control is that transaction. So you take a human being and you transact and you drain the relationship out of that relationship and you throw it away and then you get another one and keep going. If you feel you're interacting with a very impersonal e-commerce system or social media system, it's because they're treating you as a transaction. It's a very simple reason. If I were a business person and if I were to think about how I would differentiate my business from all these other transactional business, it's easy, right? I know as a founder, as an entrepreneur, frankly, as a human being, that the value is not created in the transaction. The transaction is where the value is realized. Hmm. The, the value is created in the relationship. And that's why lifetime value is six months right now in transactional systems, right? Because there's no relationship. So that's a very interesting example I wanted to talk about. There was this company called Soul Machines, funded by Horizon Ventures, which is owned by Li Kaxing and also Tomasic and Series D company. And they do human avatars and they actually use a little bit of AI at that point in time. But I think with LLM, that avatar is actually supercharged. So they had this one use case in Dubai. So apparently I didn't know this, but in Islamic banking, debt collection is a painful exercise. And Fatima, the avatar which they train based on the data they have, was able to convert 10% of the debt and became like the e Ernst and Young innovation of the region yeah. as such. But then now, now that you mentioned this, right, you could possibly put an LLM inside and yeah. that it becomes supercharged. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, mm. I'm talking about breaking every single transaction-based business yeah. model. Correct. Right. That's, yeah. that's why I'm getting yeah. to. It's like, that is a very simple example to illustrate that transaction business model being... Yeah, broken. Broken. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not talking about a relationship with a customer that's across a few months, right? I'm talking about, can you imagine relationships with customers over decades, right? Starting uh, when the customer client is a kid in high school, you 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 become like an uncle or an aunt to that, that kid and help him out, you know, just purely doing good, right? Mm. And And building that trust all the way through. And never, never, ever, ever violating that trust. Let's say in the case of one of my companies, Glint's, they do recruitment, right? Mm. So they help the kid. We, we call him, the, the model we have is Uncle Glint's. We, we call the kid, uh, we call the, the AI we're looking at Uncle Glint's, right? Hey kid, I know you're having a tough time trying to figure out if you want to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. Here's an aptitude test. Yes, you know, resources, help, 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 right? Help them get into college, right? scholarships, etc. And at some point, the kid's going to graduate and need a job, right? So Uncle Glenn's, I need a job in, in next year when I graduate. That's maybe $2,000 of commission. And that's just the first transaction. And, and in fact, you really, really do want to be like an uncle. You, want, you might tell the kid, look, kid, if you take this job, I, I'm recommending you, I get paid, right? But here are three other jobs that I don't get paid, but just as interesting, please consider them. Okay. And and you don't have to get paid at any point. In fact, the marginal cost of maintaining this relationship is close to zero. 
Yeah, so that you can actually have a whole lifetime of interaction without making any money on that one particular kid because there'll be others mm. that generate you revenues. So yeah. I'm, we're starting to think about relationships very, very differently. Now, if I have an, almost an army, let's say 10 million kids that I'm friends with, right? That trust me totally, right? Uh, because I, I will never violate that trust, right? Mm. Uh, and you are, you know, looking at Google and Facebook to supply you candidates that you can place, right? Who's who's going to win, right? Right. So is that the one thing that you know about generative AI that not many people know about based on this idea of the relationship thing that now transactions is actually going to be changed because of the way how these LLMs work? Yes. I, I, I haven't seen anyone talking about that. Right? I haven't seen anyone talking about how the transactions-based business models are going to start to break. It'll take a few years as these relationships build up because these are very long-term things, right? Mm. And frankly, I've got another set of thinking that that is a very techno-optimistic mm. in the sense that I believe if you look at the game theory, we'll actually end up with a lot of you know very good companies in the future, right? Because yeah. you cannot afford to be bad because if you're bad, a transparent efficient economic system will show you how to be bad and you can you can transact mm. and it also gives you that nuance you know last time when you use algorithms to try to sieve out cvs you're looking for certain pattern recognition but actually with lm it's more generic it's more relationship driven it may not it may help you to identify those gray areas that may be something that maybe this person even though we may not have certain qualifications we may have certain yeah. features that may succeed in yeah. this role as yeah. well that that's a that that's a lot behind that Uncle Glenn's model mm. on how you figure out what people would like to do. In, in fact, it, it at the level of high school kids, they're still trying to figure out what to do. So helping them explore that is important, right? Mm. And and helping them define their their hundred years, if you will, right? The the passion is important because no no one tends to do this with younger folks. There's a lot of mission involved in this this idea too right if you mm. if you look at the 100 150 million youths in in southeast asia alone right how many actually have a good conversation about what they want to do with their lives and are set in that path to doing that right very very few and then looking at just in comparison i'm sure you given your network there are people in the us who are working on this china also working on this how how is it different from people who are within our region now looking into the AI space itself? Like, is are the applications more specifically application driven, less foundation, or yeah. maybe the shovels? People are building the shovels to connect to the system. Yeah, I I think you you know that one of our investing themes at Mangsil is the technification of services across Southeast Asia. Right, half the GDP services, most of it is very inefficient, non automated we're automating all these things, right? That's half the GDP. It's not a small amount of stuff, right? And even in the in the non-services sector like mining and agriculture, we've got a few deals in agriculture, right? So you there's right. a stuff you can automate there too. So this cuts across almost all of our GDP. And the advantage we have over China, for example, is that when China's automating, there was no such thing as large language models that were, were usable, mm. deployable, 
So they automated with basically the the Android phone. Mm. Well, yeah, basically Android and some iPhones. And that that's basically just a, a way to give you an interface into this machinery they've got at the back end. You click, 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 the machinery grinds and you get a taxi to pick you up or something, right? Mm. That's the Chinese model for automation where where they technified the entire services sector. That's a $6 trillion, right? And the largest chunk of the profits from that $6 trillion in GDP go to tech companies that didn't exist you know, 20 years ago. Mm. Right? So Southeast Asia is probably a quarter to a third through that process. Thank yeah, you. because it's accelerated because of companies like Grab, because that, that model can be also developed independently at the same time That's right. in this region. So now AI is open to all. Yes. So now these, these technification companies are going to start embedding AI into what they're doing. So the result will be very different from what's happened in China, right? The Grab, Gojek, all these guys already have developed the stuff. It's not going to change that much, right? Mm. They might put in some AI stuff, but their business models are already engaged. But other companies will start looking at how to fundamentally change the way they approach this, this go-to-market, right? And I think that's where the value creation is going to be. You might have seen an article I wrote called Why I Don't Invest in AI. Yeah, I do, I do remember yeah, that. Yeah, it's almost clickbaitish, but it is it's because I've seen a lot of investments in AI that's just about the technology and not about how it realizes values you know, in, in the industry. So if you just want to build a pure tech AI company, then I would say build one that can support a, another company's attempts to moving towards a relationship-based business model. Mm. Right? That's because that's where I think the bulk of value is going to be created. Of course, you can you know automate graphics designers. I mean, you know, mid journey mm. all that stuff, but that's going to hit a peak pretty soon as not that differentiated, right? Mm. But that's because the vision transformer is not in yet, right? There's going to be even much more coming along yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, the point is, what those things are, are going to do is they're they're going to destroy the the value in the industry, right? Mm. Gonna, it's going to be more or less free to to get all these things where we used to pay hundreds of dollars for them. It it's not going to create a lot of value in that sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you with the technification because being in the construction industry, it's quite interesting when you, you just tell everybody, I'm just going to digitize everything, give you single sources of truth. But actually yeah. what I did was I embedded in the background using a computer vision AI to to extract the values oh, wow. to the human in the loop, but nobody knows that. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably the way I would characterize what you mean by you, you do not invest in the AI startup itself. Yes. It, the, the AI is actually embedded within yes. the technification process. Yes. That's right. Mm. So if, if that's the case, right, then what what would be the business model? I think you talk a little bit about the go-to-market strategies more towards finding a specific workflow and see how this iteration of AI innovation can embed within to improve the value, right? But then what, what would be the business model? Because one thing I've been thinking a lot about is what is the best business model because you have the foundation models which they're going to charge you a, a road tax, 
on using it, you have the compute side as well. And that compute side, if you believe in Moore's law, in another 15 months, I think it's going to go down by a tent because of the of the of the sheer volume of innovation. But how would a company build its value? I think that's 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 a question that has been yeah. really been on my mind for a lot. Yeah. So so I, I think my my statement about relationship-based business model should give you a very good hint, right? Mm. How do you create value with your customers? In fact, you can almost imagine going back to the world where there are no computers and it's just one of you and one customer. And, and how do you create value there? First of all, you're building that relationship that's outside the transaction. You know the, the your, your, your customer's family, their birthdays, you know, all that stuff. Also, it, even if you're just selling, let's say, rice, you might help the customer think about where to buy you know, flour or meat or something else, right? So, how how do you how do you relate to someone that you transact with before there were computers, right? And what what are the best business practices around that? And then how do you automate all of that? As an entrepreneur, I'm very excited about this because what I'm going to be able to do now is take my my value system and tell the the AI to do exactly that. I don't have quality control issues because I have a thousand people between me and my customers or 10,000 people between me and my customers. I literally can put my value system into every single touch point with the customer. In fact, I could create an avatar that looks like me, which mm. I not do <laughs> because I don't look very good, but they, they can interact with, with the customers in a way that it's exactly how I would interact with the customer. So I amplify myself. So there'll be bad actors there, right? There'll, there'll be founders, CEOs that try to trick customers because their value system is broken. Mm. My, my, my techno optimism is that because we are in a very transparent society, those actors will be very visible and they won't be able to transact after a while. So no mm. one would deal with them. You know, this is like prisoner's dilemma in a very transparent, efficient environment, right? Mm. If that happens, then everyone will behave right. I am quite curious if you think about how do the generative AI startups because of all these error rates, I mean, balance things like the drive for innovation, but also the ethical considerations that comes with developing and deploying AI. Like we, we start off with that plane and we talk about the the those mission critical systems like infrastructure, say an energy power plant, for example, right? Yeah. So how how do they, if let's say if you can take that particular AI into those systems, what would be the kind of considerations that they need to make? Well, when whenever we talk about this, I'm reminded of the AI that Amazon was using to you know, filter engineers, right? And basically it threw out all the women engineers because it's a training data set of good engineers didn't have any women engineers there. And, and this conversation goes back to what we talked about in terms of straight-jacketing AIs, right? I tend not to want to depend on AI's output uncensored too much right? because you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what the training set is and the kind of biases that are built into it. Like, you know, some of it even consciously, right? Like the I mentioned earlier, the the political correctness of ChatGPT. Mm. Right? 
And that could be insulting to some people and some cultures, right? How do you how do you think about that? So I, I think anyone implementing large language model for some more than casual application needs to think through all this stuff. They they cannot just assume that the builders of the LLMs are going to do exactly the job that's needed. And even if they did the most conscientious job possible, it's still a unpredictable system at mm -hmm. some level, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the nature of the complexity of the system. So mm -hmm. you, you need to put a straight jacket around it for any significant real world use. Then my question would be then, you know, what would be your advice to say regulators when on with come up with you with the fears of hallucinations? You know, these are all buzzwords, right? And then say that the fear of using generative AI being used for misinformation. And then there is also things like copyright matters now that's due to the training of data. I mean, the fear of destroying the world, I think there's enough science fiction books I have read. I I don't think we are getting there yet. But yeah, yeah but I just yeah, the more, the more, yeah, the more, I would say like more immediate, I think the copyright one is probably the most, to me, is actually where most of the challenges are going to come from. Yeah. Yeah, I, boy, this, how do you regulate innovation, right? It's tough. And look at the the failure of regulating crypto and what that has resulted mm -hmm. in huge, huge losses for the retail sector, right? To, for the individuals. For, fortunately, AI is not, not a financial kind of system, right? So the losses might be much more limited. My my general feel is go light on the regulation because first of all, whatever you regulate, your competing country might not be regulating, right? Mm. So you don't want to regulate yourself into oblivion, economic oblivion. I, I think there are simple, simple rules, I would say, in terms of transparency and truth, right? Your AI should not lie, right? Yeah. Fundamental thing is if I ask you, are you an AI? Right? You cannot say no. <laughs> well, you, yeah. you can say no, but I mean an AI cannot say no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so basic things like that, I think, and people should pay a price for it, right? So so this goes into you know how let's say a Twitter account or a Facebook account can be set up. And at some point, you need to be able to give a company like Twitter the ability to have a checkbox saying you're human or you're a machine, right? Or human-machine mm. combo. And if you lie about that, you should get a traffic ticket, just like if you, yeah. you, know, turn, you know, make an illegal turn or didn't stop. I think some basic things like that could be enforced. So I, I guess the parameter I would look for is you're improving the transparency of the system. So that's where regulation could come in. Whatever you do, don't decrease the transparency of the system. It's already opaque enough. So make people expose things and specifically what they're doing, what they're doing with your data, etc. But don't don't require silly things, right? You got to audit their training set. I mean, <laughs> that yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I, I, I'm quite curious, and that goes to actually to my traditional closing question. What does a great generative AI company look like to you from your perspective? Okay. My, from my perspective, a great generative AI company doesn't look like an AI company. 
Okay. It looks like a company that's just helping you doing something in your life. Very <laughs> well. That, mm, I think that is a very good place to stop, but we will continue talking. I'm pretty sure we should have another conversation pretty soon on that. So, Ping, many thanks for coming on the show. In closing, Pleasure. two quick questions. First of all, any recommendations which have inspired your life? Mostly sci-fi books. Yeah. <laughs> Read lots of sci-fi books. And they continue to inspire me even now. Mm. And how can my audience find you? Uh, Monksill.com is probably the fastest place, but I'm also on LinkedIn. Pinky on. Mm. And if you are aspiring generative AI startup within the Southeast Asia region, you need to talk to Ping. So for us in Analyze Asia, you can come to our YouTube channel and also our, all our podcasts where you can find us. So Ping, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>